0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It'd be great if you could keep that passage open in front of you uh, from Mark chapter 9. That's what I'll be speaking on this morning. I hope you are going well and you've had a good weekend so far. Well, in 1964, the great boxer Muhammad Ali declared, I am the greatest. Our society is obsessed with with greatness. We desire it above all. We envy it in others. We idolise the ones who have it and we trample over each other as we struggle to attain it and hold on to it. But not us. Surely not us. We may not consider ourselves here the greatest After all, we live in Australia and we are victims of the put-down culture and the tall poppy syndrome, but I think ultimately we all like the idea of being praised. We like gaining prestige, we like honour, things that the great ones receive. We do not want to be recognised by, we do want to be recognised by others, praised for our work. Maybe we want to gain accomplishments or at least stand out amongst our peers. Maybe we want to leave a mark or a legacy and ultimately be remembered. Does that sound like something that impacts you? It's that subtle pull, isn't it, of personal pride, wanting to be distinguished and held in high regard. It's a self-focus, it's something that pulls on all of us. We start to only we start to care only for our own wants and our own desires to be greater and sadly this comes at a cost for our love and our care for others. Putting ourselves first ultimately means putting others last. Now today from Mark chapter 9, which is the passage that we're going to be focusing on, we see how this trap, was also an issue for Jesus' disciples. We can see this in the key interaction between Jesus and his disciples in the middle of our passage for today, uh, which is in verses 33 and 34. So follow along with me from verse 33. Uh, They, Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. You see, the disciples' concern was for their own personal position. They were guilty of pride, envy, wanting to assert their own position of power and influence. And in today's sermon, hopefully, we will see how Jesus responds and wants us to as well when it comes to discussing and desiring greatness. I'm going to focus on two points today. Firstly, Jesus is the greatest, and secondly, Jesus' greatness leads him to respond with compassion. So let's pray as I start today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Father, help us today to walk away convicted of the truth, challenged to live in a manner worthy of you, and encouraged by the forgiveness and hope found in Jesus alone. Amen. So, my first point for today, Jesus is the greatest. Uh, Well, firstly, we see this contextually. Uh, If you think about it, two ways we see this contextually. Firstly, we see it contextually by word in his title. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 8, and in verse 29 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked Peter, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus has been given the title of Christ and Messiah, which qualifies him as the great one, the king. But Jesus just doesn't rest on title alone. Uh, We see his greatness in action, in his true glorious state. Last week, Jose took us through the end of Mark chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, uh, which finished with the account of Jesus' transfiguration. And in chapter 9, verse 3, it says, His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. In this moment of transfiguration, Jesus is clearly displaying God's glory in himself. That sounds pretty great to me. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Thus, the transfiguration visibly displayed the greatness of Jesus. So, contextually, even before we get to today's passage, we're seeing Jesus' greatness in his title and also in his glorious state. But what about today's passage? Let's all turn back to Mark chapter 9 and I'll start at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, You see, the disciples proved powerless to exorcise the demon from this young boy. Their self-reliance ultimately failed them and we see the father's faith was limited. From verse 14, we can see that this created quite a scene of quarrelling and anguish because healing depends upon the power of God And therefore, it's through prayerful dependence. From verse 19, we can see Jesus lament at their unbelief. It's only Jesus who was able to exercise this demon and heal the boy. Because Jesus' true nature as Christ and his faithful reliance on God allowed him to heal this boy and exercise the demon. Thus, in verse 19, he says bring the boy to me. I am the only one that can heal him. Jesus' greatness is seen in his authority over the spiritual world. Ironically, in verse 34, the disciples are quarrelling over who is the greatest, but Jesus is right before their very eyes. They have walked with him, they have seen him, do amazing things, they have heard about him his wondrous acts. But it's not they whom are great, but the one that they have chosen to follow. Jesus is clearly shown to be great through his title as the long-awaited Christ. He is proven great through his glorious state in the transfigured state, being in very nature God. And he is great through his ability and his authority to heal the boy and exorcise this demon. But what is plainly seen is not clear to all who ultimately miss this revelation. And I guess, what's stopping them from seeing this? Well, they're too blinded by their own personal pride, their own desire for standing. And for us, I think, Sadly, we would probably all be there right alongside the disciples, arguing over who is the greatest. We are glory seekers as well. We are the teacher who says, look at the great exams result that I got. We are the engineer who says, look at my building that I made. We might be the grandparent who says proudly, look at my grandchild that I raised. Yes, of course, we might all play a part as the teacher, the engineer or the grandparent but we don't deserve all the glory. We are glory seekers just like the disciples. And this leads me to my second point. Jesus is the greatest, but he chooses to respond with compassion and lowliness. Picking up our story again, look with me from verse 20. So, they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You death and mute spirit, he said, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and he stood up. From this section of our story, we see Jesus' compassionate heart. He's torn with anguish for this poor young boy. He sees him convulsing in verse 20 and he follows it up in verse 21 by asking, how long has he been like this? Jesus' heart is for the broken, for the suffering, for the needy. He does not care for pride and he does not care for position. And because of this, Jesus is at polar opposites to his followers, the disciples. Jesus has a compassionate heart, choosing to lay aside his greatness to serve the needy. We see this clearly when, in verse 25, Jesus only acts to heal the boy when he sees the crowds running towards him. Unlike the disciples who want the adoration of the crowds, Jesus doesn't. It's not his purpose, it's not his mission. In uh, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, Jesus really illustrates his compassionate heart when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And Dane Ortland, uh, in his very excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, describes Jesus as, and I quote, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary easily exasperated, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. How different Jesus is to the great ones of our world. Now, when I think of greatness, I don't often think compassion. Yesterday, uh, I went go-karting with a bunch of my old school friends, which was Great to catch up with them. Uh, But as soon as that green light went off, uh, this competitive spirit seemed to enter the room. It was like a big fog had entered and uh, all of a sudden elbows were out, people were getting bumped off the course and uh, it uh, it was a lot of fun actually. It was all in pursuit of wanting to win the day, to outdo your mates. And it's safe to say that in pursuit of greatness there wasn't a lot of compassion shown. But this is why Jesus' heart is so radical. It's so revolutionary. It's such a challenge to our own natural desires. Jesus has not come to seek a massive following or to rule over and dictate. He's come to seek and save the lost. His greatness leads him to demonstrate compassion, gentleness, lowliness, showing the love of God, the Father, to us, His children. Compassion and loneliness for Jesus is most clearly displayed not in exercising the demon and saving the boy, but it's most clearly displayed in His self-denial. This is ultimately His mission. We saw it last week in Mark chapter 8, 34 and 35 which says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. And just as Jesus predicts his death in Mark chapter 8, he does so a second time here in Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 30 with me. They, Jesus and the disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Here Jesus, predicting his death for a second time, is modelling and living out Mark 8:34. He's demonstrating his compassion for others by denying himself and taking up his own cross, ultimately to his death for the sake of us. It's that greatest act of compassion and sacrificial love. But additional to this, Jesus wants his disciples to also understand what this means for them. He too wants them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And in verse 31 we see that he actually prioritises privately teaching them what they must do. He ultimately models to them what he wants for them as well and that in itself is a great act of compassion. He wants self-denial, and he wants acts of compassion. You see, following Jesus is not about position. It's not about pride, and it's not about prosperity. It's about lowliness, self-denial, taking up your cross, compassion for others. Jesus chose to overlook his greatness for the sake of others when he died on the cross. And he wants his disciples both then and also now to do the same. Sadly for the disciples of the time, they just don't get it. If you look straight after this teaching, uh, we see two major errors of the disciples. As addressed earlier in verses 33 to 37, we see them arguing over greatness They aren't obviously concerned with compassion, are they, and lowliness, but rather position and distinction. But Jesus wants them to instead be, quote, the very last and servant of all, from verse 35. He wants them to welcome the outsider, even that lowly child. The child is the one without position. He wants them to welcome them into their midst, and you can see that in verse 36. But again, they actually make a second error as well. If one was not enough, the disciples decide to make a second one. In verse 38 to 41, John says, in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. But here, what's the mistake? John's putting exclusions on who can and who cannot perform wondrous deeds in Jesus' name. He tries to exclude those who aren't seemingly in the elevated status of one of the 12. And Jesus again rebukes this act of individual pride and wants all to focus on spotlighting not themselves but instead the truly great one. Jesus, the source of all power. Uh, Recently, at the end of last year, it doesn't actually seem that recent anymore, but at the end of last year, uh, as a high school teacher, our school put on a school musical uh, and I was given the role in the backstage crew, which made sense for my ability. Uh, I was put in the position of sound and lighting. Uh, In this role, uh, one of the roles was the spotlighter and the spotlighter's job is to point that bright light down on the stage at the action that's going on, so you can see it. Their job is to highlight the amazing skill or ability or acting or singing on the stage, to point out to the rest of the crowd the talent. It would be very odd, wouldn't it, if all of a sudden the spotlight had decided, oh we'll turn off the lights on the stage and instead we'll point the spotlight at me in the backstage. That's not my job the spotter's job is to point out something that is better than themselves. Just like the disciples were to take the spotlight off themselves and point it at Jesus. We too need to stop focusing so much on ourselves, our desire for greatness or our desire for the spotlight and we need to humbly repent of this arrogance in our desire to do things our way with little compassion for others. You see, Jesus chose to give up his rightful greatness and respond in lowliness and compassion. And he models this to us so that we, his followers, will also do the same. So, three points of application to finish. Firstly, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, the Great One. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, the Great One. You see, the helplessness of that desperate father who was in anguish as his poor son suffered for years at the hands of that evil spirit. In his sheer desperation, he turned even in his very little faith to the power of Jesus. We too need to recognise our own plight and our own problem. Our personal pride and desire for greatness cannot save us. Only Jesus' grace can save you. So humble ourselves and desperately throw yourselves on Christ. You see, on The Great Trap of Pride, a great quote by J.C. Ryle once said, and it should appear on the screen, It is a dreadful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the common sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected, and can even wear the garb of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps men back from Christ. It checks brotherly love and nips in the bud spiritual desires. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. We need to turn from our pride, our self-sufficiency, our desire to be great. It cannot save us. We need to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, the only one that can ultimately heal our hearts. Second point of application, we need to be prayerfully dependent on God. You see, prayer takes the focus off ourselves, doesn't it? It reminds us that we are not self-sufficient. We are not people of greatness and we are not people of great capability. It humbles our pride. On prayer, Tim Keller said, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. Prayer is especially important when it comes to gospel ministry. We cannot do gospel ministry reliant on our own strength and ability. We need prayerful dependence. It is through God and the Spirit that kingdom work is possible and people's hearts can be changed. We need to be relying on God through prayer. And in verse twenty nine of our passage, once the disciples had personally failed to heal the boy, Jesus tells them that it is only possible through prayer. God is the source of all physical and all spiritual healing. Rely on Him. Be prayerful in gospel ministry. And my final point of application is show regard for the disregarded. Show regard for the disregarded. You see, Jesus chose to demonstrate compassion and lowliness, to welcome all and to embrace all, even us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus honours those who are disregarded in society, like, for example, the little children. How do we go at caring for those who are outsiders in our life? We are so good, aren't we, as a society, at creating walls around us which shields us from people who may, not be, uh, who may be entirely different from us. We want our friends and the people we spend time with to mirror us, to mirror our values and our aspirations all back to us. So let's be people with a compassionate heart. Let's break down those walls. Maybe that looks like hospitality and inviting people over to your home for a meal, people that maybe you naturally wouldn't think to invite. Maybe that's the way and manner we speak to people. Are we generous in our time and our energy for the sake of others? Maybe we could volunteer at the Coromel Mobile Community Pantry, sharing food and fellowship with people of great need. Maybe we could volunteer to help out at the Jesus Club. We need to follow the compassionate heart of Jesus and give regard to the disregarded show Jesus love and compassion to all. So to conclude, Jesus is the greatest, but he denied himself by taking up his cross. His greatness led him to respond with compassion. So as followers of Jesus, let us too deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow in the compassionate heart and actions of Jesus our saviour. Let me pray to close. Lord we thank you that we have been given so much with Jesus. Lord we thank you that even in his greatness he chose to deny himself and take up his cross to bring us back into relationship with you. We praise you for the compassionate heart of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would not be people now who seek pride and position and self-sufficiency, but rather we would be people who follow the heart of our Saviour and show compassion to others as well. Amen.